My name is Mike Myers. I'm one of the elders here at Uniontown, and I'm going to be reading our scripture passage for today. For today, it's going to be in James chapter two. We're going to start at verse 14 and work to the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, um, that you can, we can be taught and instructed and apply it. Um, we just pray for Frank as he comes to share the message, Lord. We pray that the Holy Spirit would guide him in revealing truth from Scripture, and we give you thanks for all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, book of James. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, so grab your Bibles, your copy of Scripture, and go there. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Okay, a couple of you responded. No, 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 I'm not worried about the ladies. Now, thank you, you're welcome. Dude, if you didn't know it was Mother's Day, we might have a problem later today. I promise I'll preach short. You can go out and get your gift real quick. Whip up something fast for lunch, PB&J perhaps. And just go with it. Just go confidently go with it. It's Mother's Day. We're, we're, it's, it's, it can be a, a complicated day. Um, it can be a complicated day for a lot of, a lot of people here in the room. And so I'm going to pray for our moms here in a minute. But um, before I do that, I want to... I want to make sure I acknowledge a lot of different groups. So, so if you're here this morning and uh, this was the year you welcomed into your life your first bundle of joy, congratulations. Happy first Mother's Day. Um, then to those of you moms who've been in the trenches for a long time and your uniform consists of food stains, you have Lego scars that you can't even begin to tell people about, um, we appreciate you. Uh, the struggle is real <laughs> in motherhood. Um, some of you here that long to experience motherhood, and yet that has not been the case. Um, we pray for you and with you. We pray that your greatest desire and passion would be God, and that he would give you the desires of your heart. And not only would we pray for you, but we'd also ask that you forgive us for saying foolish things. Uh, we, we don't mean harm. We mean to love on you and walk alongside you, and sometimes, sometimes it's a miss. Um, there's some here, uh, many in this room, who've lost their, 
moms this year. So we, we grieve with you. And then there are some who've lost a child this year. And uh, there's, there's no word. We, we lament with you. We mourn with you. Um, some of you have recently found out that you are pregnant with new life. Whether it was expected or a surprise, uh, we thank God for the gift that he has given you in that child. Um, then there's a group within our church family who, uh, by the end of this year, will have emptier nests than they had at the beginning of the year. So we grieve with you, rejoice with you, right? Yeah. I, moms have lived through driving tests, exams, prom dates, uh, just the, the sick worry of a child going out and not returning at the time that the child said they were going to return. Um, just the, the overall testing of motherhood. Uh, we are better for having you in our midst today. So, Like I said, Mother's Day can be complicated. Um, it's so varied. Everybody's experience is so very different, but um, it's not something we should ever overlook. So, once again, moms, happy Mother's Day. And while I pray, dads, if you need to Google a gift, make it quick. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, thanks for our women. Thank you for our moms. God, I pray that you would watch over them and richly bless them. Would you encourage their hearts today? I pray that they would feel honored, like Proverbs 31 talks about, that they would, they would hear their husbands, they would hear their children rise up and call them blessed because they are certainly the greatest blessing in our lives. Father, we commit them into your hands and ask that above and beyond anything they say or do, that their heartbeat would be for you, that they would pursue you with everything they have, and Father, that they would continue to find full and final satisfaction in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we ask for our time together, you'd give us your wisdom, for it's in Christ's matchless name I pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, if you haven't found James yet, you can give up. It's okay. Now you want to start in the back and kind of work that way. You'll get there. I promise you'll get there. Um, what I, what I want to do first is just give you a couple, before, <laughs> before I jump into the preachy time, I've got to do the teachy time. Um, I've got a couple of minutes, I just want to make sure that I lay out, because as you heard Mike read through this passage, there might have been a few things that made your, your ears perk up a little bit, right? Um, and let me, let me kind of walk through some of that with you, let's see uh, what happens. You've got, you've got two guys, you've got the Apostle Paul, and then here you have James, who have written similar things um, and used similar words. Um, I think our greatest problem is the fact that they use the same word many times, and when they do that, well, that's not very helpful when they mean different things, right? So what James and Paul are actually doing is trying to give us a depth perception. We have two eyeballs, right? If you lose sight in one eye, your depth perception pretty much vanishes. The reason is because your two eyes view things from just slightly different angles, and it gives you that, that sense of depth that otherwise you wouldn't have. I believe that's what James and Paul are doing for us. So let me put these up here for you. Um, James... Oh, sorry, I'll start with Paul. Paul in Romans chapter 3, or is Paul, go ahead, let's get to the next one. My, my remote is not working there, now it's working. Okay, we're good now. So, Paul says this. I'm going to do Paul on this side and James on this side and see if I can't confuse myself. Paul says, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, very clear. Faith 
apart from the works of the law. That's what Paul says. You walk over here, and James says, nope, my remote is not working, Sam, so if you might help me, thank you. James says, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Faith apart from works, works and not by faith. Forget it. Close the church. We've got conflict. We've got this whole issue. We can't rectify this. Go get your Mother's Day gift now. Don't even worry about staying. The church, as it has been known for hundreds upon hundreds of years, is going to fold. No, obviously I'm, I'm being ridiculous. The conflict comes from the use of the word justified. So Paul, as he speaks of being justified by faith apart from the works, is talking about being birthed, being born. He says you cannot, by any uh, effort of your own, make yourself be born. Moms, right? The little hitchhiker did nothing to be born. It was all mom, right? I mean, you got the screaming, the crying, the pain, the agony, the pushing, the endurance, the stubbornness, and that was just me, not even Stephanie. So, but you have all those things, just kidding. You have all those things, and it's all coming from the work of mom. The, 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 the baby does nothing on its own to be born. And what Paul is saying is your walk with Jesus Christ, your salvation, your faith, has nothing to do with anything you could do. You are brought into life, new birth as you would, simply by faith, not by works. James uses justified in a different way. James says instead of it being born, it's being alive. Being alive. So let me explain how this works. Paul says you are justified. You are put in a position where you and God are made right together. Over here, James is saying, no, you need to justify your faith as if he's saying, you need to give me examples or demonstrations or give me evidences of the fact that you are right with God. And so, so justify your argument by giving me some examples. So he says that justification comes from being alive. Paul is talking about obstetrics, having babies. James is talking about pediatrics and geriatrics. He's talking about simply being alive after you have been brought into the world. And so what James is saying is, in pediatrics and obstetrics, we do all of these different measurements to see. So our, and, and, and actually, I'm making it more complicated, and I'll dial it back. Paul, uh, James says, no, as I look, i got to see if you're living, if you're alive. Well, I'll take your blood pressure. I'll put you on, the, like when the kids, you bring your pediatrics uh, appointments. And they're like, okay, so what percentile is this kid? This kid has the, uh, the head in the 200th percentile. That's amazing. Right? I mean, you always have those moments you're like, well, and some things you're really proud of, and some things you're like, we're not telling anybody, okay? It's okay. Um, get a giant melon head. Um, <laughs> I won't name names. So, because <laughs> some of them aren't my ch children. <laughs> but, but, but James is saying it's, it's even more basic than that. It's not, I want to get the size, I want to see how healthy you are. He's just saying, I want to see if you're even alive. Because a lot of people will walk into James' doctor office where it's like, okay, so let's, let's see, how's my faith? And instead of doing the test to be like, okay, so actually you're in the 70th percentile, James is like, dude, you have flatlined. You are dead, dead. James says, that's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about if your faith is actually alive or not. Do you have faith? And do you have real faith? 
James continues and says, this has nothing to do with what you say. Right? He gives a perfect illustration. He says, this fellow comes into your presence, and he's lacking clothing, he's lacking food, he's lacking home. And he comes into your presence, and you look at this man, and you're like, oh, okay, he's got no clothes. Um, hope you warm up somehow, brother. He's got no food. He hasn't eaten for days. Well, I hope, I hope the good Lord fills your belly. He's got no companionship. Be warmed and filled on your way. And, and James says, what, 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 how does that help? You, you may appear to be all holy and connected to God, but the truth is what you've done is just thrown words at somebody and they leave you the same way they come. He's still starving, he's still naked, and he's still all alone. Words alone are not enough. Your words don't put clothes on him, it doesn't put food in his belly, and it doesn't warm his spirit, no matter how sincere your words may be. Neither does saying, I have faith, actually mean you have faith. We live in a time of empty words. We live in an age where oftentimes... Oftentimes our, okay, I'm just going to do this. This is why there's so many problems with Christians going on social media after a tragic event and posting thoughts and prayers. Because then you don't do anything about any of it. You just say thoughts and prayers. Oh, that fixed everything, right? Well, prayer is powerful. It is. But you know what? If you post thoughts and prayers, I would say 9 out of 10 people don't actually even pray. But what you're doing is doing exactly what James is talking about. You are giving yourself the appearance, the air of having faith and saying, look, look over here. Look, thoughts and prayers. And James says, that's not real faith. Real faith doesn't look like that at all. You, you can say, I'm a golfer. Cool, so, so let me see your swing. Well, I actually don't play golf. I just like to watch golf. Skippy, you're not a golfer, okay? You could say, I'm a chef. Cool, but then you don't know the difference between baking soda and baking powder, and can I tell you, big difference. And if you don't know, you're not a chef. I can tell you I have hair. I'd say it as much as I want. And unless you're looking in my ear, no, I don't. Yeah, that was a dad joke. Should have saved that one for Father's Day, sorry. The, the problem is we live in a culture that acts like we live in Oz. Just take those ruby slippers and click those heels. No place like home, no place like home. I'm home! Hey, look, I got faith. You say you have faith? Good, here's a newsflash. So does most of America. 63% of Americans in 2022 claimed to be Christians. 63% of those polled in 2022 in America claimed to be Christians. So does their claim match what we see in our culture? No. That's a dead faith. Just saying it doesn't make it true. More than that, this one's even scarier. Verse 19, not only does just saying it not make it true, you know what else doesn't make it true? You having right beliefs. Look, look, look at verse 19. 
You believe that God is one. Good. But even the demons believe. And they shudder. Now, please hear this. This is really important that you catch this part. It is absolutely essential and a must that we believe the right things because truth absolutely matters. But according to James, believing the right things isn't the same thing as having real faith. He says, listen, you gotta understand, demons know God. They were created by him. They've experienced him in ways that you and I haven't in a much more personal way, honestly. Here's the crazy part. Demons aren't atheists. In fact, demons are experts in the field of theology. They've been to the best seminary ever. <laughs> I mean, demons know that God is one. They know he's the creator. They know he's the sustainer. He know, they know he's the, the just judge. They know the truth about the, 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 the death and the burial and the resurrection and the future return of Jesus Christ. They know the purpose and the power and the point of Jesus coming was to defeat them. That's why if you read the gospel accounts, when Jesus comes into, into contact with someone who's demon-possessed, and the demons immediately recognize him, and they're like, what do you have to do with me, son of God? And they begin to beg for mercy immediately. Mark chapter two, Mark chapter five. Why? Because they know why Jesus has come. They look at God, and they know him more fully than any of us ever could, and when they look at God, they shake in fear, it says. They shudder. It means un containable, uncontrollable, violent shaking from extreme fear. Why? Because they know right theology isn't enough. They know their days are numbered. They know you can have all the right theology you want, but if you don't have faith, you don't have actions that line up with your faith, well, you don't have real faith. This is a hard word, okay? If you... Let me do this way. If what you know about God, theology, if what you know about God doesn't change the way you live, then what you have is the same theology as demons. I wouldn't brag about that. If, if what you know about God does not change the way you live, you have the exact same theology the demons have. And, and as, I, as I wrestled with this this week, um, I've literally landed here. I'm not concerned about, uh, be careful how I say this, I'm not concerned about teaching the truth. I, and what I mean is, is, is that, that is what I'm held to here, and I will continue to teach the truth, and I will continue to teach theology. And there is this huge, vast ocean of theology out there that even if God gives me 50, 60, 70 more years as your pastor here at Uniontown, I will just splash around in the shallowest amounts of the ocean water. Because there's so much theology that's, that's in the word. And, and, and so I may only splash in a little bit, but, but at the end of the day, I promise you, I don't lose sleep over what you know and what you don't know. I don't. I'm not worried about what you know or what you don't know. What I am terrified about is what you do know, but you refuse to do anything with. Because that's what sets you up for that moment when you stand before Jesus and he says, well, depart from me, I didn't know you. Well, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? Yeah, but, but I don't know you. Because you have the same theology, the same faith as the demons would have. That's why this is so important. Because if you were to ask the average church attender, 
Some of the things, like, so, so what is your faith? Well, my faith is a lot of words and a lot of knowledge. And James says, no, 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 no. Real faith is not words, it is not knowledge. Real faith fleshes itself out by these works, these deeds, these things that flow out of you. So what, what do you have to see in order to assume or believe that you have real faith? Well, the first thing is this. I'm going to do it kind of backwards, but the first thing is this. And evidence that you have a real faith is seen in the fact that you love others best. We talked about it a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter one. Two weeks ago, you can go back and read that. That was also the same service. I did the cell phone trick. Thank you. You've all mostly forgiven me. Um, as you look at the, the perfect law of freedom, which is the gospel of grace, what you're supposed to approach that with and walk away from that mirror with is a humility. Because when you look in that mirror of the gospel, what you see is the two things we pointed out. One, you are a total moral failure. And, and, and if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, what? No, I'm, I'm sorry. That's the bad news. There's good news coming. But the bad news is, when you evaluate what it is that God has called you to, you have failed in every point possible. You are a total moral failure. But the second thing you see when you look at the gospel is you are ridiculously loved. He didn't leave you in your failure. God showed up while you were a sinner. Jesus Christ died in the place you should have died, was buried, and then three days again rose victoriously from the grave. So as you look at the gospel and you understand you bring nothing to the table of any value, what you bring is, is more ways that you need to be forgiven. That causes you to view other people in different ways. It causes you to to extend a mercy and a grace towards other people that you come into contact with because you then understand, listen, I, I have nothing. The only thing I have is based on the mercy and grace that God has given me, and so they need that same mercy and grace, and who am I to withhold that? So an evidence of real faith is that you are using the energy and talent and time and treasure that God has given to you to serve other people, to care for other people, to be generous in a time when generosity is looked down upon because you're supposed to get everything that you can possibly get for yourself. We have to persevere in the gospel, in the mirror of the gospel, and continue to allow it to reflect on us and continue to walk away not forgetting what type of person we are, but walk away knowing what kind of grace we've experienced, what kind of mercy that we get to play in. And evidence of real faith is that, that we, we walk with that mirror continuing to reflect on us. We see other people as a people of value, as a people of dignity, and, and it's a result of knowing who God is and who we are and what God has saved us from. And, and so I want to make sure that we, 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 we understand how important this is that we love other people best. And so did James, because he says, let me give you an example. And I'm going to tell you right now, it is not the example that I would have used. James chapter 2, verse 25 James says, let me give you an example. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? Do you see who he holds up as an example? He's like, let me, let me explain to you what real faith looks like. You ready? Why don't you take a look at Rahab the prostitute? Nope. I got a few other stories I might have run to. 
But he says, no, this is a perfect picture of it, because in the book of Joshua, you get to chapter two, what is happening is the, the children of Israel um, are, are leaving Egypt, and they're headed towards the promised land, but because, because they're people, they sinned, and the punishment was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. As they wander in the wilderness, they finally stand on the precipice of the promised land. As they get ready to go in, they send spies into Jericho because they've got to wipe out Jericho on the way. They've got to be able to get them out of the way so they can get in the promised land. So the spies go into Jericho, and the spies, where do they hide when they come into the city of Jericho to scope out Jericho? Well, they hide in the, the prostitute's house because that's, that's, yeah, that's not uncomfortable at all. I have questions. Don't you? I mean, be honest. It's okay to be honest with God's word. It's okay to be like, yeah, come on. Now, I, I do think that part of the reasoning, and again, I'm way reading into this, and I'll find out when I get to heaven, um, if I remember to ask this question. I don't know. But um, I think that because so many people would be, so many men in particular would be in and out of that home that people wouldn't even notice. Strange men at strange hours was common for the type of business that Rahab was running out of her house. I can tell you this, though. One thing I'm confident of is that was a divinely appointed moment because the spies entered into Rahab's house. And, 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 and interestingly, as they go into the house, word spreads around Jericho. There's spies. There's spies in Jericho. And so they send out the Secret Service. They send out the Homeland Security. They send out the FBI, the SWAT teams. Everybody's showing up outside Rahab's door, and they're banging on the door. And Rahab comes to the door. He's like, hello? Like, Have you seen the spies? Yes. Truth. They went that way a while ago. Lie. And, and so many people try to do the gymnastics to make it not a lie. It's a lie. God blessed a lie. You're missing the point. Because that's not the point. Why in the world would Rahab put herself in such a precarious position to try to cover for foreign spies who meant to overthrow her town? Why would she make such a courageous decision? Why would she defy her own personal authorities? Why would she get in the way where now she is going to become a, a target? This was done at incredible risk to herself, and yet she still did it. She could have very easily sold those spies out, right? She could have very simply been like, oh, hello, are there spies here? No, they're not. But what she did is she sends them up to her roof to hide underneath some stuff, that's a very technical Hebrew term, by the way, underneath the, the stuff. And, and, and the authorities are like, thank you for the tip. And they run out looking for the spies. She approaches the spies. And, and in this amazing confession of faith, she says this in Joshua chapter 2. I know that God has given you this land. I know. I know God's given you this land. I've heard the stories of how you left Egypt and how you came to the Red Sea and how the Red Sea parted. I, I heard what you did to those kings along your way. And when we heard you were coming, we've all lost heart. And everybody's courage failed because of you. And, and let me tell you why. And this is just a simple, beautiful confession of Rahab's faith. Because the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. And it doesn't seem like a lot at first. But understand what she's saying. You, your God is in heaven above. And on earth below, God isn't just an idea. He's not just some concept. He's not some divine entity that exists in, in outer space that never involves himself in the affairs of mankind. No, no, he is real. He is one. He is here. And he is Lord over everything. And so because that is true, 
I would gladly, at great risk and even great cost to myself, protect his people. See, real faith doesn't just come from her confession. It comes from this act of great courage that she demonstrated with these men. But then, then there's this other point that I, I skipped. It's not only is real faith evidenced in your loving other people best, but it's also an evidenced in loving God most. So, so the verses I skipped, look. Uh, verse 21, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of his homeland with this whole list of promises, not not the least of which is the fact that God promised to make a great nation of him. But here's a problem. Abraham in his old age had no children. And in order to have a great nation, you had to start with at least one kid. And God comes and says, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make of you this incredible nation. So now everything hinges on being able to produce a line of of descendants, but nothing. And then nothing. And then nothing. And then nothing. Some of you have experienced the, the pain of infertility, where you anxiously await the test every month hoping that this month and then the heartbreak that comes every time it's not this month. Hey, uh, Abraham and Sarah went through the same thing. And they wrestled with it. And they struggled with it. And most certainly it affected their walk with God at some point because God had made a promise, a very simple promise. I'm going to make a great nation of you, but in order to have a great nation, you've got to have that first kid. And yet, another month, and another month. For 25 years. 1998 was about 25 years ago. Did anybody promise you anything in 1998 and still not deliver? Do you think they're going to deliver on that promise at this point? No, you forgot about that promise a long time ago. 25 years after God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, 25 years later, 25 years of 12 months each, waiting and waiting and waiting and hearing from his wife, not this month, not this month, not this month, not this month, suddenly she bursts into the tent and says, Two lines. It's not COVID either. But there's two lines on this test. Child of promise. Isaac is born. You fast forward probably 15 years. So Genesis chapter 22, Isaac's probably... 15, 14, 15, 16 years old, somewhere in there. And I I wonder what that, that, I mean, I'm sure by 15, Abraham was like, all right, okay, it's getting old, Isaac, stop. But but I think in those first couple years, Abraham probably spoiled the kid rotten, right? 
I mean, come on, you've been waiting that long. Of course, he's going to give him everything he wants, everything he wants, everything he wants. This is amazing, because this is the fulfillment of God's promise. This is the one. This is the one. This is my, my descendants are going to flow straight from Isaac. God has promised that. This is amazing. And then the unthinkable happens. God shows up and asks Abram to give him back. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah and I want you to find this mountain and I want you to bring him up on top of the mountain and I want you to offer him back to me. I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. What? So, so you've got to understand, Abraham's got to be like, what? what is happening? Promise, 25 years. Here's this one. I see how this is going to be fulfilled without a problem. It's through Isaac. This is amazing. You want me to give him back to you. But, but see, that's how I would respond. It doesn't seem that Abraham responded that way because verse 3 comes right after verse 2, and it says, immediately after God started, stopped speaking, so Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took with him his two young men and his son Isaac. So, so Abraham, the next morning, it doesn't seem like he paused at all. It doesn't seem like he, he stopped and they're like, okay, God, here I go. I'm going now. He just jumped in and said, okay, son, you're with me. Servants, come with me. Let's go. And they head to the land of Moriah. And the story continues in Genesis 22. That as they get to, the, to this place, God shows him the mountain that he wants him to sacrifice his son on. And as he stands on the mountain with Isaac, probably takes a deep breath like, okay. All right. And he says to his servants, you stay here. The boy and I, we're, we're going to go up top of that mountain and we're going to worship. 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 I think we're guilty many times of coming on Sunday morning and being a part of what's happening here, and then we leave and we drive our way home and we're just thinking, man, I just didn't get anything out of worship today. What's Abraham get out of his worship? A dead son. lot of questions. And Abraham trudged up to the top of that mountain, took the knife in his hand, and began to do something that would have seemed to be the death of one of God's promises to him. We'll get to the end of that in a second, but let me ask you a question. Why in the world would he do that? What's the motivating factor? It's like, I need some motivation. Is God promising the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Why would he be like, okay, God, all right, I'm in. What would create in him this disobedience? Why would he, why would he? Moms, you understand this a little bit. Um, your teenager wants to go out. They're like, yeah, right, okay, oh, cool. where are you going? I don't know. Okay. Uh, what time do you expect to be back? I don't know. All right. Uh, what are you going to do? I don't know. Then why are you going? Because all my friends will be there. See, we forget this as we get older. As teenagers, I was like this. I'm sure many of you were too. I didn't need to know where we were going or what we were going to do. I didn't need to know how long it was going to last. I just needed to know my friends were going to be there. 
And there was no holding back. Because I just desire to be with my friends. I live for that, that friendship. All the other details really don't matter. I just, that relationship is so precious to me. Friends, that is exactly what Abraham did with God. He said, I don't, I don't understand any of this. None of it. None of it makes any sense to me. But God told me to do this, and so I'm going to do this for him because he is the one that has called me to this. That's real faith. Real faith desires the friendship of God more than anything else. So he goes up to the mountain, he grabs the knife in his hand, he gets ready to sacrifice his son, and God says, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, I know, I got you. I, I understand now. You really do have faith. Real faith wants nothing more than to be a friend of God. It's not about what you get. Not even about what you're going to avoid. And that's most faith. Most faith is word only based on these beliefs that we were taught in Sunday school that we're not even really putting into practice at all. And it's this weak attempt at doing for God because you get something out of it or you get to avoid something. That's not real faith. Real faith desires the friendship of God more than anything else. God said, Abraham, I want you to do this because of who I am. Abraham, I want you to do this because you love me most. And now I see that you do. Now I see that your greatest desire isn't what you're going to get or what you're going to avoid. Your greatest desire in all of life is me. That's real faith. That's the soul-satisfying faith that every single one of us should be pursuing. Not a system of beliefs, not decrees that we might make with our own mouth, but instead a belief that God is exactly who he said he was. A God who saw us on our worst day and chose to save us. And so we become a people who show value and dignity and mercy and grace to people around us who need value and dignity and mercy and grace. And we hold nothing back because we love God more than anything else and simply want to attain exactly what Abraham did. To be referred to as a friend of God. Is your faith alive? Let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful again and again and again for the way you demonstrate patience. God, I, I'm grateful that I'm grateful that you have given us every reason in the world time and time again to put our hope in you to anchor our faith in you and to know that that knowing you pleasing you putting a smile on your face is greater than anything else we could possibly do so God I pray for the one who might be sitting here this morning and, and that's not aware of that Father would you open their eyes to see the beauty of your mercy would they understand that, that, that although they are a total moral failure that you came to rescue total moral failure 